Kevin DeYoung says, many of us operate with a God of our own conceptions. Instead of accepting ourselves as made in the image of God, we try to return the favor by creating God in our image. And in so doing, cutting God down to our size. And what we do then is we destroy both our reverence for God and our need for personal holiness. The 16th century Puritan preacher Thomas Watson said the same thing in a different way, referring to the first two commandments in the Ten Commandments. He said that if the first commandment forbids worshiping a false god, however, the second commandment of worshiping the true God in a false manner is also forbidden. Much of what we see in our individualistic, consumeristic, self-absorbed, pride-filled, arrogant American culture driven headlong by self-fulfillment is the violation of this second commandment. Worshiping the true God in a false manner. Trying to project God out in our preferences, in our likes, to use a social media uh, term, and our understanding of who we think God should be. So many people right now are trying to make God in their own image. This is why Henry Blackaby, you remember the famous uh, author of the Experiencing God curriculum? This is why Henry Blackaby said, revival is when God's people return to God and God returns to them and everyone sees the difference. No one sees the difference. When Christians go through life trying to project, proclaim, and worship a God who's made in their own image. It's when people return to God, get to know him and worship God for who God is that others then begin to take notice. Do you think we need revival in America right now? Would you like to see revival in America right now? Is revival truly a desire of your heart? Then ask yourself right now, what is your view of God? Are you worshiping the self-existent, eternal, immutable, transcendent, independent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God of the universe? Or are you trying to go through life right now after a lesser God that somehow fits your image of God? Apologists, when speaking with an atheist or an agnostic, say that even doubters of God have an image of God construed in their minds. For instance, they'll say, well, if there is a God... There wouldn't be evil in the world. See the image of God that they're projecting? There wouldn't be evil in the world if there was a God. Or if there is a God, they would say, then this God is unloving. And this God is the cause of all the catastrophes that exist in the world. Or if not the cause of all them, then at least he is powerless to do anything about them. Atheists and agnostics are making God out in their own image. And this is why some apologists, when talking with them, will ask them to describe the God that they don't believe in. Basically, their image of God. Tell me about your image of God that you don't believe in because they say, it's very, very likely that I don't believe in that God either. And they'll use that because you're projecting an image of God I don't really believe in that God either. 
It's so easy for people from all walks of life to try and make God into their image. Who is God? What is God's name? And there are no more important questions for us to wrestle with today than these. They are more important than who's going to be playing in next week's Super Bowl. They're way more important than what you're gonna go home and eat for lunch today. And they're way more important than how your investments are doing right now after the crazy week that just occurred on Wall Street. Right now, our American culture is not going to ask you to answer these questions because they do not traffic in these pathways. They want you to wrestle with less important trivialities to distract your attention from transcendence. Who is God? What is his name? These were the very questions that Moses wanted answered in Exodus chapter three, verses 13 through 15. And the answer that God gave him was, I exist within myself. Did you catch this? God exists in himself. I am. In Genesis chapter one, verse one, the very first verse in the Bible, uh, we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the very first verse of the Bible, we not only meet God as creator, but we meet him in his aseity as well. Now, aseity happens to be a Latin word for in himself. It refers to God's self-existence. In other words, God is not dependent upon anything else for existence. God has eternally existed without any external or prior cause. God does not need to go outside of himself to find life or purpose. The verse in Genesis 1-1 tells us that there was a time when matter did not exist, but there was never a time when God was not. And the I am statement by God that we find over and over in the Bible contains this definition, that God exists within himself. And this is the God who is there. This is the God, the Bible says, who is present. Now let me read for you Exodus three eleven through 15. But Moses said to God, who am I that I, should bring, uh, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now remember, this place that we're in in Exodus chapter 3 in the history of Israel that brings us to the present text. Jacob, who was named Israel, he was the son of Isaac, uh, and he had 12 sons. Uh, 10 of those with Leah and, and some of his servants, and then the last two with the love of his life, Rachel. And the last two sons were uh, Joseph and Benjamin. Well, the 10 older sons disliked 
uh, Joseph in particular, and because Jacob showed favoritism uh, in part to these younger two sons. So what did they do with Joseph? They sold him to these Midianite slave traders, and they in turn sold him to uh, uh, Potiphar, who happened to be basically the attorney general in Egypt. He was the head of all law enforcement in Egypt. And, and Joseph became a servant in Potiphar's house, and God's favor was on him, and he was a good steward, and everything was going well, except there was one complication. Potiphar's wife took a shine to Joseph, and she wanted to get sexually involved with him, and Joseph resisted that. And one day, when she was uh, enticing, trying to entice him, he fled, and she got his coat from him, his cloak, and at that moment, she accused him of assaulting her. And of course, when your husband happens to be head of the entire law enforcement departments in Egypt, guess where Joseph ends up? He ends up in prison, and he languishes there for no fault of his own. Well, while he's there, there's a baker to the pharaoh, to the king, who's in prison, and there's a cupbearer there. And they each have dreams, and the baker's dream is a really uh, one that disturbs him, and Joseph interprets it for him. And of course, the unfortunate side of that dream is that the baker's going to lose his life. The cupbearer's dream was more positive. He was going to be reinstated by the king Pharaoh, and sure enough, that happens. He ends up serving Pharaoh again. Everything's going along fine for them, but Joseph is still languishing in prison. Meanwhile, Pharaoh, the king, ends up having these dreams that disturb him uh, about these seven sleek cows that look really good. Then all of a sudden, there's these seven gaunt-looking, horrible-looking cows. And he calls all the wise men and all his, his uh, you know, people that are head of their religions in, in Egypt, and nobody can interpret these dreams for him. And finally, the cupbearer remembers, hey, you know, there was this guy in prison uh, when we were there, Joseph, and he interpreted these two dreams, and boy, they were spot on. So they call Joseph, and Joseph interprets them for him. And yeah, the seven sleek-looking cows are going to be seven good years of abundant harvest. And then the seven gaunt cows are going to be seven tremendous years of famine. So you need to store up your grain from these first seven years so you can survive these last seven years. Of course, that's exactly what happens. The king makes uh, Joseph second in command in all of Egypt. He puts him in charge of the granaries and they take care of all this stuff so that Egypt can survive. Meanwhile, the one that really is intended to survive is the nation of Israel. And so the brothers of Joseph who sold him to slavery end up having to come to Egypt to buy grain. And the long and the short of the story is that Joseph ends up revealing himself to them. The whole family moves down there uh, to Egypt and they live there. You, I'd like to say happily ever after, but it doesn't work that way because Joseph passes on and a new Pharaoh comes along and he doesn't remember Joseph. And all of a sudden, he enslaves the people of Israel. That slavery went on for 400 years. And there's a period of time toward the end of that 400 year period of time where there were so many Israelites that the, the king at that time was concerned that they could literally overthrow the nation of Egypt. So he asked the midwives to start doing in the new babies that are being born. You know, toss them into the Nile, the largest crocodiles in the world live and inhabit the Nile River so they can be crocodile food, basically, and fish bait. Well, uh, not every midwife did that. And of course, one of the women who had a baby had a little baby that they named Moses because he was drawn out of the water. He's drew out of the water. And they made a little basket for this baby and floated it down the Nile. And wouldn't you know, uh, this little baby Moses ends up on the doorstep of Pharaoh's daughter, so he ends up being raised as a prince in the household of Egypt. 
Fast forward 40 years now. Moses then begins to see the oppression of his people, the enslaved Israelites. And he attempts one day to break up a dispute between a Hebrew and his taskmaster, and Moses ends up killing the Egyptian. And again, the end of that story is that he had to flee Egypt into the Midianite wilderness. He marries a Midianite woman there. He settles down for 40 years, and he raises a family, and it seems like that's going to be the end of the story. Then one day, on the far side of a mountain in Midian, Moses sees a bush that's on fire that is not consumed. So he goes to investigate. And this is where we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 3, where God calls him to Egypt to set his people free. To which Moses basically responds, and I'm paraphrasing here, but here's basically the way he responds. What? Me? Who am I? In return, God responds, I'm not interested, per se, in who you are. I want you to know who I am, and I will be with you. Now, there may have been a lot of good reasons for Moses' questions regarding God's name. Number one, some of the people may have remembered Moses back in Egypt, especially the Israelites, because of all the commotion he stirred up in the killing of this Egyptian taskmaster and then fleeing and basically leaving them to have to deal with the Egyptians. They're the ones who had to pay the freight for Moses' actions. The second reason is that many gods existed back then. It was a polytheistic culture. So you know, for Moses to ask, okay, which God are you? Which God are you? It was also uh, a very syncretistic culture where people would take parts of one religion and parts of another religion. That was one of the great problems that Israel had. They were adopting all of these different religions when they were in the promised land of these foreign nations, you know? And, and that was one of the great difficulties. If someone was infertile and they wanted to have children, well, this is a God of fertility. Okay, we'll take part of that God and worship that God and we'll take part of this God. And there was all this syncretism. So for Moses to ask, okay, which God are you? There's some of that makes sense. The third reason is it's not that Moses had been steeped in the worship of Yahweh. He wasn't raised in an Israelite home. He was raised as a prince uh, in Pharaoh, in the king's house. So he wouldn't have been familiar necessarily with all this stuff. And think about this. If he goes back and says to the Israelites, hey, I've been out in the Midianite wilderness and I just happened to encounter this burning bush that was never consumed, he's probably not gonna get a lot of you know, hearers. You walk around telling people you've seen a burning bush and it never is consumed and people are gonna... You know, okay, all right, short a little insulation up there, and, and that's the way it goes. But look at verse 13 again. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites, you know, suppose I go ahead and do this, what you're asking me to do, and say to them, the God of your fathers who has sent me to you and asked me, what is his, and they asked me, what is his name, then what am I gonna tell them? What do I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Eyah, Asur, Eyah. 
In Hebrew, asur happens to be the middle particle connecting these two verbs here. And asur means who, that, or because. And ayah comes from the verb that means to be. And it's also translated for us here in the Hebrew language in the imperfect tense, which means that it does carry with it some ambiguity. So it could be translated, I am, I was, I will be, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I was who I was. I was who I will be. I am who I was. And you get the picture. God is so vast. God is so remarkable. How can we possibly describe God in a few words? Now notice too the play on words here. Moses asks early on in this dialogue with God, who am I? in opposite order of what God is saying when he's saying, I am. Using these same words, but they're in opposite order. And in verse 12, it uses that word there, ayah, but it adds a particle in the second person suffix saying, I will be with you. I am is going to be with you. That's what it's saying. Now, not wanting to get too technical here or too far into the weeds on the Hebrew language uh, because you have to understand here there were only consonants in the Hebrew language. There were not vowels. Uh, there's not today. If you watch any broadcast from Israel, you will only see radicals. You'll only see consonants and it goes from left to right or if you're looking at it, it goes on the page right here from this side to the other side. And you begin the Bible by reading at the back of the book in the Hebrew Bible from the opposite side of the page. Everything is completely backwards and there's no vowels. Uh, it was in the 11th century AD that a, a group of, of scholars called Masoretes uh, added vowel points to Hebrew words to help us studying it later on to be able to understand uh, how they believe that these words were pronounced. But this particular, uh, to the Israelites, Yahweh, uh, which is a, a tremendously sacred name, was Y-H-W-H. That's what they would see, Yahweh. And sometimes they thought that was pronounced Jehovah. Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on how you pronounce it. And it was so sacred and it was so holy that devout Israelites wouldn't even say it. Now in the Old Testament, there are 6,828 references to this sacred name Yahweh or Jehovah as some think it's pronounced. Think of this, Elohim which we just read from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, Elohim, God, created the heavens and the earth. There's 2,600 mentions in the Old Testament of Elohim. And think of the word El in Hebrew, which is, just means God. There are 238 references in the Old Testament. Now, in order to not say the, the name Yahweh or Jehovah, what they would say back then instead when they saw Yahweh or Jehovah, they would say Adonai, meaning my Lord. Now, when you read in your English Bible in the Old Testament and you see the word Lord there, all in capital letters in the English Bible, all uppercase letters, what you are reading is that Hebrew word Yahweh, or again, as some like to say, Jehovah in the original language, Hayah. I am there comes from the same Hebrew root word as Yahweh. And that's what makes this text so powerful. 
because it's saying I am, but it's really saying this is I am who's Yahweh. This is I am who's Jehovah, whose name is so sacred that you don't even dare utter. It's so holy, you don't even dare utter his name. That's what makes this so powerful. And what verse 15 is saying here, he's saying, I am has sent me to you. God is saying, I am not an Egyptian God. I'm not one of the Canaanite gods. I am not a tribal deity. I am not a God who can be controlled or manipulated. I am not a God to be treated lightly or trifled with. I am not unconcerned. I am not inconsiderate or unmoved by your suffering. I am not weak or helpless. I am not small. I am not going to fail. I am not going to lose. I am not going to let you down. I am self-existent, transcendent, triune, independent, all-powerful, omnipresent, all-knowing. I am Yahweh. That's what it's saying. You know, Francis Schaeffer wrote an important book back in the 1960s called The God, the God Who Is There. And in this book, he says, I am who I am means I am the God who sees and hears, who knows and remembers, who cares and loves. I am the God who has a plan. And if you belong to Christ, I am is for you. I am is with you. This is the God who is present with us. Now, let's shift our gears into the New Testament because this I am reference now appears over and over again, especially in the Gospel of John. And each time it points to Jesus telling us that Jesus is God. Again, looking ahead to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, in verses 24 through 26, verse 24 says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship God in spirit and truth. Well, the woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I am the one speaking to you. I am he. You know, I'm the Messiah. I'm God. And this was the answer to the question that everyone was asking back then. Even uh, John the Baptist, the forerunner, the one who came to prepare the way for Jesus, he asked the same question. You remember in Luke chapter 7 and verse 19, what it says? He sent them to the Lord. This is John the Baptist, sent his disciples to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else. And look at verses 22 and 23. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Over and over again, Jesus demonstrated his divinity. He cast out demons. He calmed storms. He demanded the illnesses to leave people. He brought the dead back to life. He restored sight to the blind. He took a young boy's uh, uh, lunch with a few small barley loaves and a couple of fish, and he fed thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And the Bible says that he did so many other things that were not written down in the scriptures that, in fact, if they were, all the libraries of the world couldn't contain what could be put down there. And what is equally amazing about Jesus is that even his enemies pointed out that he was claiming to be God. 
Do you remember in Luke chapter five where they take the paralyzed man, open up a spot in the roof and drop him down right in front of Jesus because they couldn't get into this house where Jesus is speaking. It was uh, too crowded. And then, you know, Jesus is blessed by this faith. He's encouraged by this faith and he heals the man right there. Take up your mat and, and go home. And he also says to him in verse 20 of Luke chapter five, your sins are forgiven. And this sent the Pharisees into orbit. Verse 21 says, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can first give sins but God alone? Even the enemies were identifying that Jesus, he sure acts a lot like God. You know, we don't like what he's doing, but man, oh man, this guy comes across like God and we don't like it. This is blasphemy. And even in John chapter 8, we see the same thing occurring over and over again. In verse 23 of John chapter 8, it says this, But he continued, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Verse 24, I have told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. And verse 25, Who are you? They asked. That's the question. And he says, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Jesus replied, verse 28. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. De you know, this debating and questioning regarding who Jesus is echoes through the rest of this chapter. In fact, flip over to verse 48 now in John chapter 8, and we'll continue. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he's the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Very truly. In the original language, that's amen, amen, amen. That's where we get our word amen from. And so when the chaplain of the United States Senate just this last month prayed, amen, and a women, please know that was completely heretical. 
And it was an ignorant statement concerning the scriptures. Because there's nothing sexist here about amen. It means in the original language truly. And it's repeated back to back like this for extreme emphasis. Truly, truly, amen, amen. When a pastor asks you to say amen to something, he's asking you, you agree with this? Do you find this to be true? Is this truly who God is? Say amen, and people will respond, amen. They're saying truly. Well, the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He was claiming to be God. And in the original Greek language, it says here when he says, I am, it's ego, a me. Ego is a first person singular pronoun, I. And then there's the verb, a me, which is also, I am. So Jesus is saying, I, I am. And keep in mind here that, that the uh, Israelites were the very ones who had translated the Septuagint just mere decades before Jesus came to earth. The Septuagint was the Old Testament translation of the Hebrew language into the common Koine Greek language of the time in which Jesus would be living and dwelling because most people couldn't read Hebrew back then and they wanted them to know the scriptures so they put it in the common language of that day. And guess what it says in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 when it says, I am who I am in the Septuagint. It says, ego a me. Ego a me. Jesus is saying, I am who I am. The very sacred, holy name of God that you are to remember forever. You know, as human beings, we are continually changing. Our height changes, our weight changes, our health changes. We're progressing in life or we're digressing. Uh, we learn new skills, we develop new habits, we break even old ones. And if someone were to ask me, who am I? Where did I come from? How did I become in life who I've become? I would say that my father and mother gave me a set of genes that are a combination of 3,500 people in my family tree. And then I was raised a certain way. I was raised in rural, small-town Midwest America, and I had all kinds of educational influences, many different teachers along the years, many different professors. I had many different athletic experiences, many different coaches that helped shape my life. Then faith came into my life uh, in Christ just before my 17th birthday. See, we as human beings are forever changing. But if you ask Jesus who he is, I am. I am who I am. No one gave Jesus a set of genes. No one or no power brought him into existence. He had no beginning. There is no reality outside of himself that didn't come from him. There's no force or influence upon his character or power that influences him. Jesus is utterly absolute, unchanging, transcendent, self-existent, independent, immutable. He would say, that he is, I am. He would say that he is God. You know, Warren Worsby in his book, He Walks With Me, said, if all the world's philosophers and founders of religious systems could speak to us right now, if they could come back to earth and speak to us right now, all they could say to us is, I was. That's all they could say. I was. Because they're all dead and they cannot personally help us. Jesus doesn't specifically or simply speak to us in the past tense. I was. Because he's alive. He says, I am. Yes, he was. 
but he also is, and he will be into the future. That's why Hebrews 13, verse 8 says, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Past, present, and future all unite in Jesus, the great I am. So, in response to this knowledge today, in response to this understanding, please, Please, I beg with you, I beg you, please do not try to take the great I am and make him into your image of God. Do not try to take and make the great I am into less than God Almighty, less than the immutable, transcendent, self-existent, eternal God that he is. Would you please pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to net right now to start this new sermon series to consider uh, who Jesus is, to consider I am, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who you are and what your name is forever. Lord, today we recognize that as human beings in the freest society with all kinds of affluence and abundance, we tend to project you out to be a God in a certain way that we want you to be. But God, you're not that. You are the great I am. And Lord, you're inviting us to remember that. Even during these crazy, turbulent times that we find ourselves living in right now in America, you want us to know that you are the great I am. I pray, God, that we will come to that understanding and we will grow in that understanding in these weeks and months to come. And we pray this now in the matchless name of Jesus and for your honor and glory, amen.